There are stories that Jesus tells that very much engage. Which side of the mind is the artistic one? Right side? Um, so we tend to be very left-minded people, especially uh, if you're kind of theologically, biblically inclined. You like bah, 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 logical statements about who God is. And yet we're told that so much of Jesus' teaching are these kinds of stories. I don't know if you exactly followed it. I'm going to give you another second to just kind of consider this. But these stories are very much meant to light up that other side of our mind, that creative side, that, that side that um, can handle a little bit of ambiguity, that can handle a little bit of, of wondering and uncertainty of, man, what, what's really gotten at here? In this particular section of Matthew, what's really interesting is we're told that in this particular moment where Jesus is teaching, and I won't give all the background here, but we're told that at least on this specific day, and I'm guessing it wasn't just he woke up and felt like doing this. It was probably more normal in his teaching. We're told that Jesus only talked to the crowds through parables. Really interesting. So it just kind of goes from story to story, and he seems to introduce them in, in this way that he introduces this specific one, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like. So it seems like, if you're wondering what's the question that he's actually answering, what's he getting at, is he's trying to tell them, well, this is what the kingdom is like, meaning... This is what, when the reign and rule of God enters the human story, this is what you can expect it to be like. That's what he's answering here. The reason why the parables feel especially appropriate in this season of Advent is because Advent is a time where we consider what it means to live in that kingdom, specifically what it means to live in a kingdom that's both in a sense come in a sense, yet to arrive. In fact, this word advent is this ancient word meaning arrival. That's what that word means. Advent doesn't mean Christmas or doesn't mean, you know, it's not some Latin word that means like before Christmas or something. Advent is just a word that means arrival. It means that, um, that something is, is approaching. I really, really love, and what I want to have in your minds as we go through this series, is something that, that the great teacher and theologian Fleming Rutledge, she's, she's alive today, is she wrote a great book on Advent. And what she argues is the best way to think of Advent is to think of Advent as, as having kind of three parts to it. There's three arrivals. There's, there's three... Um, there's three ways in which God comes to us. She says the first advent is the advent that we look over our shoulders at. It's the, it's the advent that we normally think of. It's the arrival of Jesus in the incarnation as a baby in a manger. And so advent is meant to, to have kind of one sense of, of looking back at this first arrival. And what many church traditions also emphasize is that this is a season also to look ahead to the arrival of Jesus that's yet to come, that there is an advent that we long for in the here and now. So, so there's also this second advent out ahead of us. But to not include the third advent is, is to probably not do full justice to what the Scripture's vision of the coming of the kingdom of God is, which there's a third advent, which is Jesus is coming to us here and now, that we don't stand between the arrival of Jesus back 2,000 years ago, and whenever he should come again, and now we are left alone, but rather that God continues to come to us by his spirit, that Jesus said crazy things like, it's better for me that I go away so that I can send my spirit to you and be present with all people 
at all times. So there's also this Advent. There's, there's this coming of God to us here and now. And Advent is supposed to live, I guess you could call that attention, but it's more, it's more of something that we're to hold together. That yes, Jesus has come. He's full, fully revealed who God is in coming in the form of a human being, showing us who God is perfectly in human form. And he continues to come to us by his spirit. We're not left alone. We are not abandoned by God until he comes again. And yet there is this arrival that we await when the full reign and rule of God will be implemented to the four corners of creation, when all things will be made new. Advent is a time to live, to hold all of those things together. And here I'm reminded of what we talked about so, so many times in the last series on the Lord's Prayer. Um, I don't know about you, but the Lord's Prayer was like a really good series for me to put some things together. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. But I certainly enjoyed studying for it. But one of the things that we said again and again in the Lord's Prayer is you can't understand the way that Jesus calls us to pray, and you can't understand the way that Jesus calls us to live if you don't understand that we live in this overlapping moment, that we live, that, that ever since Jesus has come, there is this overlapping of realities that is fundamental to understanding who we are, who God is, and what he's doing at this time. Namely, that the kingdom of heaven has arrived in Jesus and is advancing in the world through his people. And yet, as we look around, we see that the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. We see that, in a sense, heaven has at last come to earth. The great story of, of Christianity, the great story of the scriptures is that in the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth were perfectly overlapping. God's space and human space, perfectly overlapping. And yet because of human sin and rebellion, those two spaces were pulled apart such that heaven and earth are now separate. But in Jesus, this is what he's telling us so often in his teaching, in Jesus, heaven has come back to earth, that heaven is reuniting with earth. That's why we can be audacious and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. What? on earth as it is in heaven. God, make that overlap more and more thorough. So we live in the already of God's arrival and the not yet of the full implement, implementation of God's reign and rule. You, you got to understand that, that already but not yet. You got to understand that overlapping. 100 bonus points, if anybody remembers, the super 10 cent, maybe 50 cent theological term for that. Anybody got it? Already, but not yet. That's good. But this one's like way even fancier. Mike Freiberger. Inaugurate eschatology. Big round of applause for Mike Freiberger. Inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology is the idea of what God will do at the end of all things. It's, eschaton is this Greek word for the end. Eschatology is the study of that. What will God do at the end? Well, the end has been inaugurated. It's a good word for, for us uh, Americans who have this sense of the inauguration of a president. When a president is inaugurated, He's reigning and ruling, but the full implementation of his policies, of his ways, is something that we yet anticipate. Inaugurated eschatology, overlapping, already but not yet. I need this concept to be in your mind as we go through these parables. And the question that Jesus is answering through these parables is, what can we expect life to be like in that overlap? Okay, with that in mind, I'm going to reread the parable, and I want you to think of how is Jesus answering that question 
through this parable. I'm in Matthew 13. Really good if you, if you either look on screen or look uh, in a physical Bible or on your phone as I read through this. This will be participatory, I will warn you. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The servants and the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I don't know if you realize this, but actually... Jesus explains this parable. It's one of the only parables that, that he takes pains to explain. So check this out. Jump down with me to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's him, Jesus. I'm the sower. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. These are stories. These are meant to engage our mind in a different kind of way than propositional truth. And so I don't want to just hand this to you. I don't want to just say, this is what it means. I want you to do a little work on your own. So I want you to relook at, not necessarily just Jesus' explanation, but the parable itself. And I'm going to ask you to turn to a neighbor and be a little bit bold and just share with them, What's, what's the detail in this that surprises you most? What stands out? What are you most curious about? What do you think might be going on here, okay? Ready? I'm going to give you two minutes to reread the parable, and then I'm literally going to have you do discussion in a Sunday gathering like a crazy person, okay? Um, ready? Go. Two minutes to read it on your own. I would especially emphasize 24 to 30.
All right. Now you're going to talk to a neighbor, and you're just going to share what stood out, right? Let me say something. This is not a time to impress anybody with your Bible knowledge, right? Like, I'll, <laughs> I want to be like, I'll do the preaching. No, this is just supposed to be you genuinely saying, here's what stood out to me. Here's what I find curious. Here's the part that, that I find it. Okay, that's, that's all that I want to, to have happen here, okay? So no nervous. Nobody's got to impress anybody else, but I want you to share that. Ready? I'm going to give you three or four minutes. Go. to them, they're friendly. All right, 30 seconds. All right. Close it up. Here we go. How'd that feel? Everybody all right? Everybody okay? Kind of fun? All right? Kind of terrifying? Some, some of you? Great. Um, well, I had all week to look at this. So if you don't mind, I'm going to share what stood out to me. Here we go. Yeah, I cheated. Um, okay. So Jesus says that the, just kind of walking through his explanation of it. So he, he's the sower. Son of man is the sower. And, he, and he's throwing out seed and and the seed which is a regular image for what god is doing in offering the gospel and sending out the word and that seed sprouts good fruit wheat something that actually provides nourishment once it's full grown then an enemy comes and throws throws a different kind of seed down that ultimately becomes wheat and just step back from this first of all why is this a problem I don't know how familiar you are with agronomy, with agriculture, but weeds are a problem, not just because they look bad, but weeds are a problem because their roots go into the same soil that that which is supposed to bear fruit 
is going into and takes nutrients from that soil that should be going to that which is meant to bear fruit. The problem with a weed, of course, is that weeds, by definition, do not bear fruit. All they do is that they grow and that they take the nourishment that's there for their own, for, for, for their own use, but don't actually produce anything that is of value to others. Interesting idea, right, of talking about what is the difference between, as Jesus described here, a son of the kingdom and a son of the evil one. Sons of the kingdom, to use one of Jesus' favorite images for the life of a follower of his, bears fruit. Actually grows into something that, yes, needs nourishment, needs to be taken care of, but needs that in order to be a blessing to others. Whereas a son of the evil one, the mark that you are in alliance with the enemy is that you take, 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 take for your own good, but don't actually give anything out. That, that you are someone who hoards rather than is a blessing to others. A couple of things that are noteworthy. One is, well, I'll say this, is looking at a bunch of interpretations of this over the course of this week. Probably the most popular one is that is this idea, that emphasizing the idea that the weeds and the wheat grow in close proximity to one another. And so a lot of people would say, oh, this is about how in the church you have good people, you have bad people, you can't tell who's who, and so the church just needs to move forward. The one reason why I wouldn't necessarily take that interpretation is because we are explicitly told the field is what? The world. So the field isn't necessarily the church. That'll preach all day long, and there's a good sermon in there. Uh, one of the issues with that is that Matthew is actually the book that most often talks about how the church is to handle evil within its midst. And it's not this just sort of passive, don't touch it, don't do anything about it. It's actually an engagement with it. So this isn't the place to go into what does the church do when bad, evil stuff happens in its midst. This is talking about the world. Again, this is talking about the kingdom of God. This is a wide-angle lens to a wide-angle question, which is, what will it be like when the reign and rule of God comes in the world? And he says, well, the wheat and the weeds will be in close proximity and will grow up together. Of course, where this ultimately lands is with this idea that while, uh, notice that the reapers here are angels, and the angels say, this, this is like not a great arrangement. This is uh, precisely because won't the, the question that the reapers are ultimately asking as the people who work the field and are responsible and likely paid on commission by how much wheat comes in at the end of the harvest season are saying weeds are inevitably going to make the harvest less plentiful. Weeds are going to complicate things. Weeds are going to make the full realization of the ideal perfection of this field impossible. And so notice it's angels, right? Like, uh, I don't know about you, but the first time that I read through this, I thought of myself as a reaper, as a, as, you know, obviously I'm a wheat. And so uh, as one who would sort of go to God and be like, now that we know who's who here, what do you want me to do about this? No, no, that's not even what's going on here. It's the angels who look in and say, Jesus, what's going on here? In other words, even the angels, at least by this telling, you don't want to go into too much detail. You don't want to do too much with the parables in terms of coming up with entire systematic theologies. But even the angels kind of go, Jesus, your kingdom has come, and it's like this? Even the angels are a little bit confused. 
Because here's ultimately what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus is responding to one of the most fundamental struggles of a person of faith, which is, if Jesus has really come, if he's, if he's really brought the kingdom of God in this world, if he's really reigning and ruling now as Lord of all, why, why is the world still such a mess? Why am I a mess? Why is my family a mess? Why is the church a mess? What's the answer that Jesus gives? What's the answer as to why? Yes, there's wheat. There's things actually bearing fruit. There's fruitfulness in the field, which is the world. Because a master has come with good intention, sown good seed in this world, and now things are actually growing in this field. And yes, there's also an enemy who comes and sows a different kind of seed that creates havoc, that takes from the world, that makes life messy. What's his answer? It's so interesting, the answer. Do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to eliminate evil, right? You want us to get all the bad stuff out? You want us to finally find a, a sense of, of purity within the church, purity within the world, Master says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Jesus says, when my kingdom comes, there will be wheat and there will be weeds. And I will not eliminate the weeds, because in eliminating the weeds, I might also destroy the wheat. What do you think he means by that? What he's getting at here is that the judgment of God always comes with a kind of collateral damage. And he says that he is the only one, though, able to fully understand what that damage will be and therefore meet out justice in exactly the right way so that there is not ultimate cosmic collateral damage. And yet we say, yeah, but if you let me choose, I could figure out who's wheat <laughs> and I could figure out who's weeds and we could align with the angels, and we could get this thing right as la at last. What's the problem with that? <laughs> One, we don't know people's hearts exactly. We don't know our own hearts. Right? As one scholar puts it, the only result of a truly dedicated campaign to rid the world of evil would be the abolition of literally everybody. One of the hardest things, one of the heaviest burdens that we bear as the people of God in the overlapping of the kingdoms is we are those who have the audacity to say, yes, Jesus has come and is reigning now. And yes, he will come again and implement his full reign to the four corners of the earth. And yet, we do not experience the full implementation of that. And the scriptures answer for why that is again and again, why God seems to have this audacious, almost dangerous patience in bringing ultimate judgment into the world, the unified answer of the New Testament is it's because of you. It's because of you. It's because of you. It's because God is patient and wants all people to have the opportunity to turn in repentance to him. 
There's this crazy thing that the book of Job in the Old Testament is this book, I'm deciding whether to go there. I'm going to go there. The book of Job is very much about this question. Job is a good guy. He's a righteous guy. And yet all of this horrible stuff happens. Weeds spring up. Life-changing, life-devastating weeds grow up in his, in, around him. And his friends come. And they say, you must have done something wrong. And he says, I'm pretty sure I didn't do anything wrong. And he's saying, well, maybe God isn't good. I don't know. And there's all these questions around it. And when God shows up, he says a lot of things. But one of the weirdest things that he says is this illustration of an ostrich. I may have shared this before, this illustration of an, you know, an ostrich on its legs, right? Like, and there's this weird thing that it says about an ostrich, which is that ostriches are horrible parents. And it says that ostriches, what they regularly do, right? Like we think of the animal kingdom, we think all, especially mothers in the animal kingdom are like, you know, the penguins that do the thing or whatever, like mothers, right? Like, no, ostriches are horrible mothers. What they do is they lay their eggs, then they leave and they just go away. And they leave their children, oh, right? Like they're not like the type who sit on the eggs and protect them forever. And <laughs> this is God. God uses the ostrich. And he says, and yet the ostrich children more often than not survive. Why? And God's answer is because I don't destroy the ostrich mom for being a horrible mother. Do you know why I don't destroy her? Because no ostrich mom, no ostrich babies. In other words, my forbearance, my patience is so that more and more might have the opportunity to actually repent. In other words, if you look back in your family tree, and if you have ever had the instinct, I just wish all the bad people would go away, you take one part of that tree out, because I guarantee you got some bad people in your family tree. I know that I have some in mind. Do your history, right? Like, Bad people that should be wiped off the face of the earth. The answer to why weren't they wiped off? Why wasn't the weed just plucked up once and for all? Jesus would say, yeah, well, what, what would happen to you? What about you, though? In my patience, I'm bearing with these things so that the wheat might not also be torn up. This is wild that Jesus shares this parable. It's... it's um, it's kind of unsettling, to be honest with you. It's unsettling. And yet here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm trying to set your expectations right. Because the expectation, especially of the people that he's talking to at that time, and this doesn't necessarily come from the prophets that actually ended up in our scriptures, but there is a lot of other writings of God's people of that time, of the Jewish people of that time, that say, when the Messiah comes, all evil will be dealt with once and for all. Evil, um, the Romans, whether it's the Romans or unfaithful Israelites or people like the Samaritans, when the Messiah comes, it's totally wiped off. No more weeds, all wheat. We're just chilling, flapping in the breeze as wheat. And so the people are saying, if you're the Messiah, then clock's ticking on evil being uprooted once and for all. And Jesus says, no, 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 you get the kingdom of heaven wrong. The kingdom of heaven is like one who sows seeds and then patiently waits. Because you know what's true about weeds and wheat? I had a slide for this, and I totally forgot to put it in, I just realized. Is the particular weed that he's talking about here is called, is called darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L. And, and it's fascinating. I didn't know this until this week. It's fascinating. A grain of wheat, especially in its early stages, and darnel look exactly the same. It is only when it comes to full flower when, when, when both kind of open up to what they will 
they will be at their final stage, that you can even begin to tell the difference. And I think that that's part of what Jesus is saying. Is he saying, I am patient, I was patient with you. And therefore, to have the audacity to say, yeah, but don't be patient with that person because they're actually truly hopeless. He says, no, 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 this is not how my kingdom works. And yet that means that life comes with all kinds of heartache, all kinds of suffering and pain. It means that the life of faith is one of what can feel like relentless suffering. And Jesus is saying, he is not selling you a bill of goods. He's saying, yeah, this is what the kingdom is like. Because you know what it is to be wheat in the midst of weeds? It's to feel choked out sometimes. It's to feel like others are taking what is rightfully yours. It is to feel hemmed in by evil and suffering and pain and loss and death at times. And Jesus is saying, that is not the absence of my kingdom. That is where my kingdom is exceptionally present. There's at least three things that I think are implications of this parable. One is that the people of God must be people of lament. And I know it's the Christmas season, and I know every song that we hear says, be of good cheer, right? Like, no, that's nonsense in a world such as it is to put on a false face and say, everything is fine all the time. Praise God if things are fine. Praise God if you have reason to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing virtuous about suffering, but suffering, Jesus says from the beginning, look at his own life, is the norm in the life of faith. Isn't it so beautiful that at least he would be honest about that? Rather than like every other practically religious teacher, philosophical teacher who says, if you follow me, things will really begin to line up. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, if you follow me and are wheat, you'll be hemmed in by wheat. Until that day. And so we must be people willing to name that reality. And name it unapologetically. Name it unashamedly. Because there is this false gospel. It shows up in that book of Job. Which says, if you are suffering, there must have been something that you did wrong. We must put an end to that false gospel. That suffering comes always as a direct result of your own sinfulness. Jesus will have none of that. Now look, does suffering sometimes come because of our own sin or rebellion? Yes, amen, hallelujah, we've all been there. But what the church can do is to, is to then universalize that and make you feel as though if you come here and you're in pain and suffering and like maybe unrelenting kind of pain, we are constantly in need. That at the end of the day, we're kind of like, maybe that's on you a little bit. A church that laments though, and is willing to say bravely again and again, no, we live in a broken world. No, there are tears on most of our eyes, whether, whether most of us are willing to show those tears or not when we walk into this place. That is the world in which we live. This is why the songbook of God's people in the Psalms, we did a whole series on the Psalms of Lament. This is why over 50% of it are the songwriters of the people of God crying out in pain, not in victory, not in overcoming, in pain, saying, because this is my reality. This is the world such as it is. We must be people willing to name reality for what it is, to lament as Jesus did. Because this is a really, really oversimplified way to put it. Right? One of the realities of suffering is, I once had a counselor say this to me, that suffering equals 
reality minus expectations. Suffering equals reality minus expectations. So if you're living in a really hard reality and you expected everything to be great, your suffering is higher than if things are really hard but you expected them to be hard. Now that's an oversimplification. That's not the most encouraging thing that I'll say in this sermon. But I think that sometimes as Christians, we actually increase each other's suffering by not having the expectations that Jesus himself gave us for what life will be like and not naming those for each other. By not being willing to lament and say, I hate that you're walking through this. And yet to say equally the truth that is across the pages of the New Testament, like when for in 1 Peter, when he says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what it means to be faithful in a messed up world. Is actually as your faithfulness increases, so often the opposition to that faithfulness will increase. This happens just internally. The more that you seek to please God, the more your own flesh will scream against you and say, this is not what I want. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Even internally, that reality is true. And so when someone is seeking righteousness, seeking holiness, seeking to combat sin in their life, and it's really, really hard, we wouldn't say, well, if you were holy enough already, I don't know. I know that's hard. I know what it takes to put to death things that I've struggled with for decades. So I come alongside you in that. Second thing here is we must know the difference between patience and passivity. I think it's really easy to read this parable and to think, oh, God wants us to be passive toward evil. Again, he's answering a different question here. Scriptures could not be clear. You've got to read this with the rest of the scriptures. Scriptures do not envision a people of God who are passive toward the suffering of others, who are passive toward injustice in the world, who are passive toward the reality that there are those who destroy others through their words, through their actions, through their manipulation. The people of God are to be people who seek justice and mercy like is normally up here in our core identities. But that comes also, the reason why we say seeking justice and mercy is that comes from a patience that reflects the God who is patient with us. You can be patient without being passive. You can seek justice while remaining patient with those who are doing injustice. This This is what God did. Do you see that? God was not passive toward injustice, evil, sin, and death in the world. He was not passive toward it. He was active and direct in confronting it. And yet he is undeniably patient. It's the thing that maybe drives us most crazy about God is he is patient, he is forbearing. And the only reason it drives us crazy is because we are always looking outward when we apply God's patience. When we look inward, we say, thank you, God, that you are as patient as you are. Amen? That's an amen moment. God's forbearance is his great mercy to us. And then he calls it to... calls us to extend it to others. Look, there are a lot of one-line Christian things that, are, that drive me nuts, and I won't name them, but there are these little things that are like, don't build your whole theology on one line. I will commend one to you. Love the sin or hate the sin is not so bad. That one kind of sort of works. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Did I say the opposite? Yikes. Hate the sin, love the sinner, right? In other words, we can, we can go to war against 
This is, why, this is why the New Testament says we don't wrestle against people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities. We wrestle against evil. We hate evil. We're direct against it. And yet we love while we do it. You see, love fuels both our direct action against evil and also our patience with it because it fueled God's patience toward you and his directness towards the sin, evil, and death in your life. You see that? It so often makes me think of it, and, and I know we evangelicals love to sort of roll out Martin Luther King Jr. and, and make him our, our example par excellence for all kinds of reasons. But one of the most beautiful things about that man, one of the things, uh, I read this, this uh, compilation, this like civil rights history. One of the most beautiful things about him, about Fannie Lou Hamer, about a lot of the, the, the real big figures in the civil rights movement, one of the most underappreciated things about it is that there was this constant insistence that the enemy, right, that these white racists that, that they were coming up against would not be demonized, would not be hated, that time and time again in these meetings, people would begin to express genuine frustration, genuine um, against these people. And Martin Luther King Jr. would say, as soon as we hate them, we have lost. We must be patient with them while realizing, because here's the reality, they saw racism as not only the enemy of them, of black people in this country, they saw it as the great enemy of white people's flourishing. And they said, we got to love them enough to go after that power, but be patient with them as people because they're image bearers of God. That's on the other side of this. Do you know how... Do you know what courage that takes? Do you know what patience that, where does that come from? That's why the civil rights movement was to its core a gospel movement. Because without the gospel, without Jesus going first, you don't have those kinds of resources. We must know the difference between patience and passivity. Finally, we, we should long for the final judgment. And I know that that sounds crazy. Because in most of our minds, the final judgment is when God comes and he's ticked. When God comes and he's just telling people off and everybody's going to burn, right? We have a little bit of that here, right? There's that here. What's so interesting about the final judgment in the scriptures, here I think especially of Psalms like, uh, Psalms in the 90s, um, not the 1990s, like Psalm 90. Listen to Psalm 96. Rachel, if you're quick enough, if you could get that up there, that would be... Super impressive. Come on, give her a round of applause. Well done, Rachel. I'll read it from here. <clears throat> oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Happy song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Happy song. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him. All the earth say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let all the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. 
in the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Why are the trees clapping their hands? Why are the fields exulting? It's the final judgment's coming. It's so different than how we conceive of the final judgment, right? Like, why are you singing? This is terrible. We are to be people who long for the final judgment. For in the final judgment, God will perfectly, righteously, judiciously, forever, all that's gone wrong. And I think one of the reasons why the final judgment bothers us is because we put ourselves in the position of the angels. And we say, yeah, but I know what are wheat and weeds. I don't know if I'm comfortable. Whoa, 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 that's not on us. It's not on us. It's not to say that the final judgment doesn't matter. It's not to say that we aren't to be people who share the good news and, and are... But why would, why would the trees be clapping their hands if the final judgment is not ultimately a good thing? In other words, to say we long for the second advent, right? To say that we long for Jesus' coming again is to say we long for the same thing that the trees are like, please already. Because they look around and they see a world that's a mess. And yet they look around and see a world whose field is the world. It's his field. No question. I know we all want an answer to, why, why is there a devil? Why is there evil? Why does God allow it? It's not the question the scriptures seek to answer for us. Do you notice that even in, <laughs> when the disciples come to him and say, explain the parable, what do they call it? The parable of, what do they focus on? The weeds. <laughs> they call it the weeds. They're focused on the weeds. Jesus, let's talk about the weeds. Jesus is like, that's what you got from that, Right? Because that's what we're focused on. She says, this world is mine. And yeah, there's an enemy. That's the, that's the scripture's answer to why there's evil in the world. Because there's an enemy. There's an enemy who is working against him. There's an enemy who is Jesus' opposite. There is also an enemy who is not Jesus' equal. Hear that? There is an enemy who is Jesus' opposite operating in the world. There is also an enemy who is not Jesus' equal. It's Jesus' field. He owns it. He's got it, right? That's part of the point of this. It also should be comforting, right? Because we can take a doctrine like the sovereignty of God and we can make it say that every action in the world is an action done by God. That's to go further than the scriptures go. Jesus says, why is there bad seed? There's an enemy. That's the scripture's answer. I actually find that weirdly comforting. God is still sovereign. It's still his field. He can do as he pleases. But every action, you can't just say, well, God did this. And so, right, this is what Job's friends are saying. Well, God did it. God did it, and so it must be something that you're supposed to learn. No, there's an enemy who is Jesus' opposite, but he's not his equal. Last thing. <laughs> the question this parable obviously begs is what? Which are you? Right? Like, that's the ultimate question. Which are you? You wheat? You weed? I'm so tempted to be like, how many of you think that you're wheat? Let me ask that without raising hands. How many of you think you're wheat? How many of you think you're weeds? If you don't ask this question, I think you're not listening to the very last thing that Jesus says. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, open your ears. I'm saying something. I'm saying something of eternal cosmic significance here. And if you're not at least asking the question, how do I know? How do I know if I'm a wheat or a weed? 
Well, he said one definition, which Jesus is perfectly fine with, is to say, well, does my life bear fruit? Am I someone who bears fruit, or am I someone who takes and hoards for myself? It's a good definition. Here's the reality, though. You're all, I, we're all weeds. We know that, right? Like, when we were planted in this world, we were weeds. That's all of our story. So the question becomes, how does a weed become a wheat? How does a weed become a wheat? How? How? Anybody sophisticated in, in agriculture? How does it work? <laughs> the woman holding the newborn baby gets it right. How appropriate in the Christmas season. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. There's no way. You can't change the substance and nature of a plant. You can't do it. You can't just make it. You can't rearrange its DNA. Unless what? Unless you created the thing, maybe. Unless you're powerful enough to make things that weren't something, something that they now are. At the very least, this parable should make us go, I can't believe that there's actually even remotely a chance that I'm a weed. Right? Look, Christian, I'm not trying to, to mess around with your assurance. I actually think it's, it's a beautiful thing to give you assurance as your pastor. Say, if you are bearing fruit in your life, if you are overcoming sin that once felt like you could never overcome it, if you are actually finding yourself more inclined to give to others rather than to hoard for yourself, if you're finding yourself actually destroying some of the idols in your life and no longer caring in an ultimate sense about things that you do, you should look around and say, what's going on? How is this weed becoming a wheat? And the answer is it's a miracle. It's a miracle, nothing less. It's your only hope, right? Like there is no efforting your way as a weed into a boop a wheat, right? Like, that's not a thing. That's also a false gospel. You need a miracle. You need the owner of the field to somehow come and say, not only am I powerful enough to, to make sure you're a certain kind of seed, I can take bad seed, make it good seed. That's what I do. I'm a new creator, right? This is my field. This is my world, Jesus is saying, and I'm the only one powerful enough because what did Jesus do? He actually was bound like the weeds. He went into the fiery furnace of sin, hell, and death. He became a weed, the ultimate wheat, the ultimate fruit bearer. The master of the field put himself, bound himself, and went into a fire so that you, weed, wouldn't have to do that. And so that instead by the power of his resurrection, by the power of new life, right? by a new creative act of his resurrection, he can resurrect you into something new, resurrect you into wheat. This is your only hope, weed. This is your only hope of being a fruit-bearing wheat. Go to the master, right? Not with questions, about, so what do you want me to do about evil? Because Jesus' answer is like, well, first let's deal with the evil in you. And that's going to take a miracle. And then maybe when you're ready, I can begin to create in you a heart like mine that's patient but not passive. Right? That laments and is okay sitting in the unknowing and the mess and the pain of this world because you know that that is the reality of the world and that you're complicit in it. And so you're okay sitting in that because you also know 
that I'm not absent in that place. But instead, hear me, sufferer. Hear me, someone in here who has been in pain for so long that you say, am I even in the right field? Is there a master? Does anyone own this? Does anyone see me? Does anyone see how choked out I am by the weeds of this world? And Jesus says, that's the one that I'm closest to because I put myself in that place. That's where I'm most present in this world, right? This is, this is that third advent where he comes to us. He says, it's actually in lament that I show up. It's actually in opening your mouth. And I know some of you would attest to this, that in your suffering, you never felt Jesus particularly present until you opened your mouth and said, where are you, Jesus? What are you doing? How could this possibly be good? Why is there weeds all around me? And so often, all he wants us to do is actually bring that reality to him. And that's where we find him, strangely, mysteriously, oddly. He came, he's coming, and he's actively pursuing you now in those hard places. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, that this is our hope in Advent and every season of life. God, we pray that you would make yourself known to us in the hard stuff of life, that you would make us patient but not passive toward evil in ourselves, in others, in this world. God, make us courageous people, but make us people of love, first and foremost, always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.